The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Hey everyone, so welcome back again and uh, we're going to continue with this amazing sutta, the Upakilesa sutta on all the uh, defilements, the corruptions and I didn't actually say at the very beginning, I didn't say much about this word Upakilesa, it's an in interesting word uh, very often in uh, Buddhist countries, in Theravada Buddhist countries uh, the word as a, that is used for corruptions and defilements is the word kilesa. And uh, the interesting thing is that the word kilesa does not really occur very often in the suttas. Uh, what you find in the suttas is uh, a sankilesa and upakilesa instead. Uh, and sankilesa is basically synonymous with kilesa. It just means a general defilement of the mind. But the word upakilesa means like the refined defilements of the mind. Uh, and uh, so this sutta is about those final little things that hinder the mind from entering really deep into meditation. And this is kind of the name for this particular sutta. And uh, one of the things that you find elsewhere, you find for example that the five hindrances are called upakilesas. And what that means is that the hindrances normally are not the, very often we talk about the hindrances as anything that blocks your meditation practice, but that's not really quite accurate. The hindrances really are those very refined uh, corruptions of the mind or defilements of the mind that stop you from entering deep samadhi. That's really what the hindrances are about. Uh, and you will find when you read the gradual training, for example, uh, that the five hindrances are at the very end of the gradual training, just before you enter samadhi. Uh, yeah? So you gradually abandon various things. You practice morality, you practice sense restraint. Uh, Satisampajanya, and then you abandon the hindrances just before you achieve the jhanas. They are called upakilesas, they're refined defilements of the mind. So uh, sometimes when we know how these words are used, we can kind of understand the path a little bit better because you understand the sequence in which you have to abandon things, etc. And uh, so that can be useful. So that is what this sutta really is about. But before we got, get to those famous upakilesas, uh, maybe infamous is a better word, infamous upakilesas, because uh, they are uh, bad ideas, uh, notorious upakilesas. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, before that, we will have a little bit more of a look at what the Buddha is doing yeah, yeah, after he leaves the monks, after he speaks these famous verses uh, in the middle of the Sangha. So... This is what happens next. After speaking these verses while standing, the Buddha went to the village of the Balakalonakagama. It's a Pali, uh, Pali word really here. I'm not sure if it is correct to translate a name, so I prefer just to keep the name. Where Venerable Bhagu was staying at that time. Bhagu saw the Buddha coming in the distance. So he spread out a seat, placed water for washing the feet. The Buddha sat on the seat spread out and washed his feet. Bhagu bowed to the Buddha and sat down to one side. <laughs> so you can see here many of the things are similar to what we do in the present day. You have a seat spreading out the seat. This is, what, this is why we keep on spreading out these cloths all the time. 
Yeah, there's a similar kind of thing here. You have a cloth. And I, sometimes I wonder why we do it, but we do it just as as a matter of kind of ritual, I think, because yeah, it has become a ritual among monastics to, to spread out a cloth before you sit down. Uh, not sure if it's necessary. I don't know, but these robes aren't that dirty. I have to kind of protect the whole world from my dirty robes. Uh, <laughs> it's not that bad. So I'm not sure. I th- most of the time, at the time of the Buddha, it is when you're sitting outdoors, uh, you would use this kind of cloth, right? Not when you're sitting anywhere. Uh, but anyway, so sometimes you just follow tradition blindly. You could close your eyes, okay, put out the cloth there. <laughs> anyway, so that's, um, I'm being a bit naughty. I hope you hope don't mind me being a bit naughty, here because it's, it's more fun if you're a bit naughty than if you're kind of too, uh, too straight all the time. So the Buddha said to him, I hope you are keeping well, monk. I hope you are all right. And I hope you're having no trouble getting alms food. Yeah, Kamaniya means like you are at ease, you are happy, you are okay. Yapaniya. And um, this is kind of the way the Buddha talks to the monks all the time. There's a sense of um, affection there to his monks. A sense of not really attachment, but a sense of care that they are looked after. And of course the Buddha knows that if you care for someone, if you speak to them in the right way, then they will listen to the Dhamma. They will open up their hearts. They will be able to hear what he's talking about. And uh, even even though the Buddha was more human at that time because he was closer to them, uh, people still probably a little bit awestruck by the Buddha at times. Uh, and uh, so uh, he creates that atmosphere where people are open and ready. And that's so important, right? Uh, when you give a Dhamma talk, it should be done in the right way. Uh, it should be done in a way where it opens people's minds and hearts. Uh, there should be... Um, a positive emotional experience to listen to a Dhamma talk. And then these things are powerful. And you can see how the Buddha creates this atmosphere by doing these things in such a way. So it's actually very nice. The little details that are very nice. And they are kept there for a reason in the suttas. They're kept there because they have a, they are significant. They are important. They are, these are not just random stuff that uh, you know doesn't mean anything. Sometimes the suttas do occur random stuff that you wonder, what on earth is that doing there? Uh, and that's also kind of nice. Uh, but most of it is meaningful. Uh. And he replies, I'm keeping well, sir. I'm all right. Uh, I'm having no trouble getting arms food. Uh. Then the Buddha educated, encouraged, fired up, and inspired Bhagu with the Dhamma talk, after which he got up from his seat and set out for the eastern bamboo grove. So we notice the words here that are used for um, what the purpose of a Dhamma talk. Only the first part is educated. I can't remember what the Pali words are now, to be honest with you. So it's a little bit random how people translate it, but this is probably fairly accurate. I, this is Bhantasujato's translation. So the most important words here, three out of four, are encouraged, fired up, and inspired. Yeah, these are, so the education part is only a minor part of the Dhamma. The idea of firing someone up, of making them feel good feelings, being inspired to do the practice, to set in motion this whole practice of the Dhamma. That is the most important thing here. The education, the learning about the Dhamma is the easy part, yeah? knowing what we have to do. And all of you here know pretty much what you have to do already. Yeah? 
The hard part is actually to do it, uh, to kind of feel that motivation, to want to do these things, to really want to be kind all the time, to think the right kind of thoughts, uh, to meditate in a way where you don't think about all kinds of things, uh, not taking an interest in the world because you understand that that world actually is not very interesting at all. Uh, and that is the hard part. Uh, and that is where you need to be inspired. And this is the main thing that the Buddha does again and again in the suttas. Uh, there is a nice passage, I think it's in the Mahasunyata Sutta, Majjhimanaka 122, uh, and where the Buddha, uh, uh, you know, the, I think Venerable Ananda, someone asked the Buddha, oh, can we have a Dhamma talk? And the Buddha says, you heard enough Dhamma talks. <laughs> Something to that effect. You know it all, right? You know all the things about the silas and about the various kind of um, doctrines that the Buddha has set out, the way he has set out the Dhammaha. You don't need to hear anything more. Uh, and then he says very beautifully, you should, you should instead talk about Dhamma uh, between each other or whatever. The Dhamma talk should be about uh, how to give rise to energy, uh, how to... Uh, practice the virtue, how to um, have wisdom, etc. Et I can't remember exactly the wording there. I haven't looked at this for a long time. Uh, and the idea is that you should do things that get you going on the path, that motivate you, that drive you on in the practice, uh, because that is the hard part. Uh, you already know all the doctrines. You understand what it is that you have to do. So leave that to one side. Uh, now, any talk that you have should be about inspiration, basically. Uh, uh, because we are driven by emotions. Uh, human beings are driven by emotions and we often forget that. Uh, we're not driven by ideas because ideas are dry. Uh, we can be driven by ideas but only if those ideas are accompanied by emotions. Uh, that is what drives us. Because why? Because uh, we feel the world. Uh, it's feeling that gives rise to craving. Uh, right? Craving is the motivating factor in the world. Uh, without feeling, nothing happens. This is why feeling is one of the fundamental aspects of dependent origination. Vedana pachaya tanha. It is from feeling that you get the desire or the motivation to do anything in the world. Uh, this is why one of the cruxes of, uh, uh, of human life, or any life, is feeling. Emotions are very closely related to feeling here. Yeah? Without feeling, there's nothing. There's no purpose. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. You're just going to lie in your bed and do nothing here because you're not motivated for anything here. It is feeling that motivates us. And so getting people to feel the Dhamma, to be motivated by the Dhamma, that is really the critical thing here. That is what drives you on this path. That is why craving to practice the path is good. Vedana pachya tanha. Tanha pachya upadana. Craving um, conditions taking up. What do you take up? You take up the practice of Dhamma. Yeah? Upadana is also dependent origination, also applies to the practice of the Buddhist teachings. Take up Buddhism, take up the Dhamma, take up this practice. Yeah? And then you bhava. But of course, this particular taking up, this particular craving leads to the end of craving. That's the difference. So uh, this is, you can see here how, um, how this Dhamma actually really works. Uh, and you need to get the emotions going. That's when it's really powerful. Uh, and this is what the Buddha is doing here. Inspiring, encouraging, firing up. Then having done that, uh, he goes off to the eastern bamboo grove, the Pubarama. Uh, or this is also very close to uh, Kosambi. And uh, then it goes on. Now at that time, the Venerable's Anuruddha 
Nandia and Kimberla were staying in the eastern bamboo grove. The parkkeeper saw the Buddha coming in the distance and said to the Buddha, Don't come into this park, ascetic. <laughs> there are three gentlemen. This, this is Adan Sudato's translation. I'm not sure about this one. There are three gentlemen who love themselves staying here. Don't disturb them. <laughs> it sounds a little bit weird, to be honest. But anyway, the, so first of all, the park keeper doesn't recognize the Buddha, right? Which is kind of interesting. So the Buddha did not stand out. He was not three times the height of ordinary people, etc., etc. Uh, and he's just an ascetic. He's just a monk among monks. Uh, yeah? And the park keeper doesn't no idea what's going on here. Uh. And then he says, and this is very beautiful, he basically, uh, attakama is the Pali word, and kama is to like, yeah, attakama, usually is translated as who, uh, their own, who are practicing for their own benefit or something like that. That's the usual translation, uh, who love themselves. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if that is, uh, it, it's kind of uh, sweet, I suppose, but it is a little bit, uh, little bit over the top. Um, Anyway, he is stopping the Buddha from entering because he's looking after his monks. Yeah, these are my monks here. The park keeper is very keen on these monks. Obviously, they are very inspiring monks. Anuruddha, Kimbala, Nandia, these three friends. Anuruddha, of course, being the cousin of the Buddha. And then you have these friends. So it's very nice, yeah? That's the kind of park keeper you want to have. Someone who keeps everyone out, even the Buddha himself. That's kind of that. So next time you come to Newbury Monastery, you might have a park keeper there who keeps you out, saying, "No, no, there." Ajahn loves himself, so please, please don't come into, <laughs> please don't come into this monastery. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I, I don't think that will happen. But anyway, just kind of, uh, so uh, don't disturb them, right? Uh, and Ruda heard the park keeper conversing with the Buddha, and he said to him. Don't keep the Buddha out, good park keeper. Our teacher, the Blessed One, has arrived. Then Anuruddha went to Nandi and Kimbala and said to them, Come forth, venerables, come forth. Our teacher, the Blessed One, has arrived. Then Anuruddha, Nandi and Kimbala came out to greet the Buddha. One received his bowl and robe, one spread out the seat, and one set out water for washing the feet. The Buddha sat on the sp seat spread out and washed his feet. Those venerables bowed and sat down to one side. This is the standard way of uh, greeting a senior monk. You receive the bowl and robe, and you will see if you go to a Buddhist country, like uh, the, especially the Theravadan countries, this is still happening in the present day here. Yeah, you go out, you receive the bowl and robe of the senior monks, you prepare a seat and all of these kind of things. Uh, sta standard procedure here. Um, it's kind of Nice when you see this, you read the suttas, especially the Vinaya Pitaka, and you see the uh, continuation of the Buddhist tradition all the way back to the time of the Buddha. It's really nice. You see so many things that you recognize uh, that the, is presently done in the Buddhist countries around the world. Uh, and you feel that you are part of this ancient tradition uh, that was instigated by the Buddha, started out in those days, maybe sometimes even older than the Buddhism. These may have been standard things that were done in that society at large. Uh, so you're part of this, uh, this incredible thing. Yeah? Yeah? Um, the Buddha started it and now we're still doing it. Uh. The Buddha said to Anuruddha, I hope you're keeping well, Anuruddha and friends. Uh, 
I hope you are all right. I hope you're having no trouble getting alms food. So Anuruddha and friends is because the Pali says Anuruddhas in the plural. You can't say that in English. Yeah, you can't say um, the plural. This is the way things were said in those days. Anuruddhas means Anuruddha as the leader of the three monks. This is how you address those three monks. We are keeping well, sir. We are all right, and we're having no trouble getting alms food. I, I should say that this idea of the plural being used of Anuruddhas is actually very significant, because what that means, for example, when the Buddha says bhikkhus, monks, it does not just mean the bhikkhus. It means everyone who is sitting there. But the bhikkhus are the most senior people in that assembly, and because of that he he addresses it to the bhikkhus, but he also includes the bhikkhunis. Even the samaneris are included as well, I believe. <laughs> samaneris are included. Samaneras, lay people are also included. Yeah, and lay men and lay women. So everyone is often included. It is addressed to the most senior people in the assembly. That's kind of the point. So um, that is interesting. So it means that you are inclu- everyone is included when you read the suttas. Then the Buddha says, I hope you are living in harmony, appreciating each other without quarreling, blending like milk and water, and regarding each other with kindly eyes. Yeah, Buddha has just come, just come from Kosambi, where everyone is arguing, and now he's laying down the ideal monastics. This is how monastics should live together. Yeah, appreciating each other, blending like milk and water, not like milk, not, not like water and oil. Water and oil separates, but like milk and water. Uh, regarding each other with kindly eyes. Uh, you look at other people and you have a sense of kindness towards them. Uh. And of course, he replies, because these are the ideal monastics in the Sangha. Yeah, this, these are now setting the ideal. And this is the idea here, the contrast between the monks at Kosambi who are arguing and then the ideal, how we ideally should live. Indeed, sir, we live in harmony, as you say. It's a very high standard, but again, the idea of the Buddha is to set the bar to the highest ideal, and then you try your very best to reach that ideal. Very rare to reach this ideal fully, but uh, sometimes you get reasonably close. Uh, and uh, in a good monastery, uh, it's generally a harmonious monastery. Uh, and that's a monastery where uh, uh, you, know, you live at reasonably close to this kind of standard. Uh. The Buddha says, but how do you live in this way? This is very interesting, because now we're going to get the instruction for how to live in harmony. So how do you live in harmony? In this case, sir, I think I am fortunate, so very fortunate, to live together with spiritual companions such as these. I consistently treat these venerables with kindness by body, speech and mind, both in public and in private. And I think... Why don't I set aside my own ideas and just go along with these venerables' ideas? And that's what I do. Though we're different in body, sir, it's as if we are one in mind. And this is such a beautiful expression of living in harmony. 
yeah, the idea of feeling fortunate. Uh, wow, I'm so lucky to have a spiritual companion such as this. Uh, it's such a marvelous sentiment. Uh, and it all depends on how we see each other, how, what we focus on in this world. Uh, and if we can always focus on the good qualities in the people around us, and there are so many good qualities to be focused on, uh, and to remember how rare it is in the world to find people who are practicing this path in a good way, trying their very best to develop these qualities. Uh, wow, I'm so fortunate to have friends like uh, Ajani Sarano and uh, Venerable Santa over here, and all of you, uh, part of the BSV. What a wonderful thing that is, to have such companions. Uh, and when you think like that, really appreciating each other, it opens up your heart to the world around you. And you start to see the beauty in people around you. How fortunate I am to have companions such as this. When you think like that, how can your meditation not be good? How can you not feel joy when you sit down and you close your eyes? You feel that you are looked after. You feel that you are carried along by this wave of goodness and people around you. And you have no choice but to follow along because you're part of this movement moving forward. Uh, it's like coming behind the big truck. The Buddha is like the truck. Uh, and there is the kind of the, the, um, the vacuum that is created behind. You're pulled along. Uh, yeah, this kind of this uh, powerful current of the Dhamma going against the stream of the world. Uh, how fortunate I am uh, to have the Buddha as a teacher. How fortunate I am that there are still people practicing this world in such a, wonder, such a marvelous way. Uh, all these beautiful Kalyanamitas. Uh, and so this is uh, how to think about the Kalyanamitas. How to think about the Buddha and all of these uh, people that still exist in the world practicing in the right way. Uh, this is how to think when you are on the committee of the BSV. Uh, yeah? It's very hard to do committee work. Uh, it's very difficult to make committee work harmonious. Uh, but this is really how you do it. This is how you incline to make the committee work as harmonious as possible. Uh, it's really difficult. I am a little bit on the committee in the uh, BSWA because uh, that's kind of the way it works in Perth. And I know how hard it is uh, to uh, do things in harmony. Uh, but this is how you do it. Uh, and of course the next part here is just as important, right? The idea... First of all, you consistently treat all of these people by, by kindness, by body, speech, and mind. Yeah, you think about them in good ways, you speak about them in good ways, both in public and in private. Uh, you don't kind of swear in private, but in public you are kind. You know, they don't, that, that's, not, that's the wrong way. You are always kind. Uh, integrity, they call that. It, is, it is suffuses the way you think about things. Uh, and then this is kind of the critical one, right? Why don't I set aside my own ideas? Uh, this is perhaps one of the most important things in committee work, is to set aside your ideas uh, because you feel that, okay, uh, otherwise I'm going to have to argue uh, and I don't really want to get into an argument. So let me just set it all aside. Uh, I'm just going to be like an ant. I'm going to work really hard. Uh, I, actually, please don't be like an ant. That's really stupid. Uh, you, I'm just going to do my work, uh, whatever it is, uh, without really kind of uh, discussing things too much. Uh, and it's actually very nice. I, I've noticed how there are different ways in which we work together. When we work together as a group, you know, in the monastery we often work together, uh, you know, in various projects or whatever. And sometimes everyone has their own opinions about how the work should be done. And then it's kind of hard to get any work done at all. At other times you have one, like, leader who has a vision, and everyone just does whatever that leader says. And sometimes it's really nice just to have that leader and you just do whatever the leader says. You don't have to think, you don't have to make any choices. Uh, actually, it's quite a beautiful way of working here. 
and uh, so it's kind of that balance, yeah, and and um, so uh, yeah, it's different cultures as well. Different cultures. Some cultures are better at having a leader and everyone following. Other cultures are more like argumentative. Everyone has an opinion. Uh, I come from Norwegian culture. In Norway, everyone has an opinion. I think it's worse than Australia. Yeah, you think maybe Australians argue that Norway, everyone has an opinion. Because Norway is a flat society, there's no hierarchy. And because no hierarchy, everyone has an equal allowance to have an opinion about things. If you're the boss of the company or you're the kind of the most uh, lowly worker, uh, your opinion is just as valid. Uh, and so, and that can be useful sometimes because it aids communication, but at other times it's not useful. Uh, and personally, I think more and more I prefer just to be the worker who takes orders. Uh, you don't have to think. Uh, you just do it. Uh, it's going to be good enough. Uh, and you kind of work along in harmony. Uh, of course, sometimes you have to say things because things are really out of whack. Yeah? So it is always about balance. Uh, anyway. So, um, um, so you set aside your own ideas, and that's what I do. Though we are different in body, we are one in mind, so it seems. So a very simple passage, but to me it is incredibly meaningful. And some of these little things like this are some of the most meaningful things. If you can be inspired by this sort of thing, yeah, then I think you're going to go a long way in this practice. And the Venerable Nandiya and Kimbila spoke li likewise, and they added, that is how we live in harmony, appreciating each other without quarreling, blending like milk and water, and regarding each other with kindly eyes. Good, good, Anuruddha and friends. I hope you are living diligently, or heedfully, or carefully. Yeah, appamada, keen, atapi, and resolute, pahitatta. Heedful, keen, and diligent, I would say. Anyway, indeed, we are living heedfully. But how do you live in this way? In this case, sir, whoever returns first from arms around prepares the seats and puts out the drinking water and the rubbish bin. That's how you are diligent and heedful. Put out the rubbish bin. <laughs> If there's anything left over, whoever returns last eats it if they like. Otherwise, they throw it out where there is little greenery or little crops or drop it in the water that has little or few living beings or no living beings. Then they put away the seats, the drinking water and the rubbish bin and sweep the refectory. If someone sees that the pot for water for washing, drinking, or the toilet is empty, they set it out. If he can't do it, he summons another with a wave of the hand, and they set it up by lifting it with their hands together. But we don't break into speech for that reason. And every five days we sit together for the whole night and discuss the teachings. That is how we live heedful, keen, and diligent. <laughs> now, and that's kind of also an extraordinary passage, right? I, you think that heedful, keen, and diligent would mean that, well, we sit in meditation or we, uh, you know, we do, uh, I, I don't know what, we do building work perhaps, I don't know what it is. Uh, but actually, no, this is how you live diligent, heedful, keen, and, and, and diligent. Uh, how can that be the case? 
And I think because all of these things are the foundation for the meditation practice. The meditation emerges from this as a natural consequence of these things. So if you do your daily activities in the right way, then everything on the path comes from that. It is driven by these things. So what is the important point of all of this? So the first important point is that everyone does their duty here. Yeah, in harmony, you do what you are responsible for. You make sure that the harmony is preserved in that community by living in the right way, by setting out the things that you're supposed to. There's a way of doing things. And secondly, of course, the important thing is that you don't really talk very much. Yeah, you notice that. They're basically quiet. And they kind of are on the lookout for what needs to be done. So they look out, and then they see someone needs a hand, yeah, and then they go and help. Sometimes in our society, it is such that everyone kind of looks after themselves. But actually, it is a beautiful thing to look out for what people around you need and give them a hand. When you see they need a hand, this is a beautiful way of showing care for the people around you. Oh, let me help you. Let me give a hand. Instead of everyone kind of being self-sufficient, in a sense. So you lend it to other hands, and through that kind of bodily action, you're actually showing metta and kindness right there uh, through these things. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's kind of, that's really, really inspiring, really nice. So you actually don't need to say anything. Yeah. Sometimes I think we speak because we are afraid of, uh, if we don't make that contact, maybe people won't like us. We want to make sure that we are liked and that we communicate enough to kind of feel good. Uh, but sometimes you don't have to speak to feel good. Uh. And uh, this is what you notice, the further along the path people have practiced, the less they speak and the more they just are kind in a kind of gentle and nice way. Huh? So you just do things together huh? and then you are quiet for the rest of the time and then you come together to talk about Dhamma, probably to inspire each other. Yeah? And then when you sit down, you are ready, the mind is ready to meditate. The meditation is just a consequence of all of this. Huh? But this is how you are heedful and careful. Huh? Meditation is kind of beyond heedfulness because meditation is already, uh, you know, that's already just looking after itself in a sense. So incredibly simple things. Uh, and that's kind of what is interesting about this. Uh. So, good, good, Anuruddha and friends. Uh, but as you live uh, heedfully like this, uh, have you achieved any superhuman distinction, any knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones, a meditation at ease? So this is the real purpose of the practice, right? Have you achieved any of these things? This is what it is all about. And so you can see here, these are, and this is a very interesting phrases that you find here, a superhuman distinction. This is the Uttari Manusadhamma. It's actually superhuman quality, I would say. Yeah. Have you achieved any superhuman qualities? And uh, what are these superhuman qualities? Well, we'll see this later on as we move on in this. But in Buddhism, the superhuman qualities, Uttari Manusa Dhamma, Uttari is beyond, Manusa is human, Dhamma is quality. Um, these are the four jhanas and the four stages of awakening. Yeah, these are the super beyond human qualities. And um, 
that is very interesting in its own right. Because uh, very often in Buddhism, uh, you hear that jhanas, they are just samadhi, they don't really count. But what you find in the suttas is that these kinds of samadhi are almost always placed on the same levels as the stages of awakening themselves. Jhanas and stages of awakening all come together. So if you haven't reached the jhanas yet, you should not be too surprised because you are almost awakened when you come to these qualities. Yeah? They are very, very high. And the reason why they're called superhuman qualities is because you go beyond ordinary human perceptions, ordinary human dwellings when you go to these things. The jhanas are called the end of the world, lokanta. Because when you come to the jhanas, you leave behind the ordinary experience of the world, which is the world of the five senses, that is completely gone in the jhana state. And because it is completely gone, and because our experience of the world is always about the five senses, it is very hard to even imagine what these things might be like, because they are literally beyond our ordinary imagination. That is why they're called beyond the human qualities, beyond the ordinary human states. Yeah, so this is kind of what is interesting. And the qualities of the jhanas, the happiness, the peace, the non-self experience is so similar to awakening. It's getting very close to awakening itself. Uh, maybe not similar exactly, but very close to the idea of awakening. Yeah, that the step from the jhana to awakening is very small. Uh, that's why they are set on the same level, on par almost, with awakening itself. Uh, in fact, the jhanas are called the Sambodha Sukha, the happiness of awakening here. Yeah. So it is very similar in quality to awakening experiences. So the Uttarimanusadhamma, right? Uh, this is what this path is about. This is where we want to go. Uh, awakening, but if not awakening, then the jhana states are close. Uh, have you achieved this? Uh, a distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones, the Allang Arya Nanadasana Visesa. Allang Arya, enough for the noble ones. Yeah, worthy of the noble ones. Uh, again, what are they? Four jhanas, four stages of awakening. This is where the noble ones hang out. This is the footstep of the Tathagata, as I mentioned yesterday. Uh, so they're worthy of the noble ones. So if you can get there, it means that you are like a noble one almost. You are experiencing the areas where the Buddha likes to stay here, where the noble ones, the Arihants like to stay here. Yeah, you are approaching that nobility yourself. What a wonderful thing that is. Uh, it's called a distinction, visesa. A distinction is something you, you know, if you are a distinguished person, uh, it's come something special. So these are, you're becoming a distinguished person at this point. Uh, uh, but what is really interesting here, which I have always noted to myself when I was looking at these things, uh, it is not just that, but it actually is knowledge and vision. Uh, and so the four jhanas are called knowledge and vision. So you should never think that this is just samadhi. You should never think that this is just kind of, oh yeah, you just become stupid and, and happy, happy and stupid. You don't actually get any insight from the samadhi, from the jhanas. No, the jhanas themselves are a knowledge and vision. It is true that you don't have that knowledge or perspective while you're in the jhana, but when you come out, your world is transformed. Because the input, the information, the understanding that you gain from having such an experience is going to be very, very profound and important. 
Why is that? Well, the reason is because you have given up almost everything in the world. Uh, all you have left is this tiny bit of the five khandhas known as the jhana experience, uh, which then is the happiness, the, uh, um, the uh, uh, vivekaja, pitisukha, yeah, vivekaja, pitisukha, the, the uh, pitisukha, the rapture and happiness born of separation or seclusion. Yeah, that's the standard way the first jhana is described. Uh, uh, Vivekaja, born of seclusion, Piti Sukha. And that is really all you have left with a tiny movement of the mind. Uh, so almost the whole world has left, been left behind. Uh, and what that means is that, first of all, you understand that the world is Dukkha because now you're more happy than ever before. Uh, all of that stuff, Dukkha, good riddance. It's impermanent. Uh, it is impermanent in a very powerful way because you have seen not just the world arising and ceasing, I'm sorry, arising and passing away like a wave. This is the usual impermanence people look for. The sit in meditation, seeing the feelings in the body come and go. That is a very shallow kind of impermanence. You don't really understand all that much. You have to get out of the water to understand what the water is. You have to get out of that world to get a full perspective of what the five senses and the body really is about. And that's what happens in the jhana. You emerge from that world. That world ceases and cessation is the deepest kind of anicca. That's when you really understand impermanence. It is completely gone completely gone. And now you know it is happiness, it was dukkha. And finally, you cannot access that world as long as you are inside the jhana state. In the jhana state, the will has completely died down. You cannot choose to go back into that world. Yeah, The, the choice is gone. Like, just like you now, you probably can't choose to enter a jhana at will. Very few people can do that. <coughs> And that choice is missing, and that is our loss because there's such an incredible amount of happiness. But at that point, when you enter a jhana, you cannot do the opposite and come back into this world. And of course, you're happy, very happy not to come back to this world because you understand it's all dukkha, so you're quite happy to be stuck in the jhana state. But we should not be happy to be stuck in this world. This is the real problem, that we are stuck in this world without being able to achieve something far, far superior. And for that reason because you can't access it. It is called anatta. Anatta means that you can control things. It means that you can access it. If it's atta, rather, you can access it. If you can't choose it, if you can't have it, it must be non-self. So you, it is very pregnant with insight, these states. Yeah, that's why they're called jnana-dasana. Very high kind of insight comes from these things. And all you have left is a tiny sliver of samsara, a tiny sliver of nama rupa, a tiny sliver of five khandhas that is remains. And that tiny sliver is called the first jhana, the second jhana, third jhana. Now you have to understand that as impermanent, as dukkha and non-self. And that is quite easy to do because you have abandoned all of the swamp of sensuality here. The snare of sensuality as we saw before. That is all, all gone. This is all you have left so interesting, right, that jhanas are called jnana-dasana, knowledge and vision. Uh, these are very important things. Uh, and uh, the, the contemporary Buddhist world does not really appreciate these kind of statements very often. Uh. So have you achieved anything? And then the last one here is a meditation at ease. 
Pasu Vihara, literally a comfortable abiding, yeah, is a literal translation. So in Buddhism, if you want to be comfortable, the only way to be comfortable is if you enter a jhana. Prior to that, you're not really at ease. You're not really comfortable. Yeah. So the Buddha's idea of being at ease and comfortable is very kind of high. Yeah, You think you're comfortable when you sit down in a chair, but we are never really comfortable. The body is always irritating. Yeah. We don't really see this until we get to this particular point. Uh, so it is important to uh, kind of gain this appreciation of what is there on this path. Yeah, It is very, um, very extremely interesting. It is full of meaning and happiness and ending of dukkha and, and all of these kind of things. Uh, anyway, and then Venerable Anuruddha replies, Well, sir, uh, while meditating heedful, keen and diligent, uh, we perceive both light and vision of forms. Uh, but before long, the light and the vision of forms vanish. We haven't worked out the reason for that. So, yeah, so uh, while meditating in the good way, they perceive light and vision of forms. What is that? And light and vision of forms is what we in the present day call samadhi nimitta. Yeah, we talk about samadhi nimittas or nimittas. Nimittas, I think, is the proper pronunciation. But anyway, uh, we talk about these things in the suttas. The samadhi nimitta means something else. It is not used in that way. In the suttas, samadhi nimitta means the subject of your meditation. Uh, four satipatthanas are called the samadhi nimitta in the suttas. Uh, the contemplation of the uh, cemetery contemplation are called the samadhi nimitta. Yeah, these are the object, or if you like, maybe better, the subject of your meditation. Uh, object can be a bit misleading because uh, they are not they are changing things, they are not fixed things. Uh, so uh, subject or object of meditation, either one is fine. Uh, in the suttas, the closest we get to what we now call samadhi nimitta, the kind of the contemporary uh, way of talking about these things. Usually nimitta is used for any kind of vision that you have in your meditation. Uh, and some of you have talked about the visions that you have. Uh, and that's really nice. Uh, usually a sign that your mind is calming down when you have ni- visions in your meditation. And um, so you have the visions in your meditation. It's usually a positive thing. But the ideal vision you want to have is a simple vision. Uh, it's something that is not uh, diverse. If you see landscapes and all these kind of things that people sometimes see, or you see heavenly realms, I don't know what you see in your meditation, it's too diverse to really allow you to enter the full samadhi. So the ideal way of having a vision is to see something simple like a disk of light, like the sun or something like that, the moon in your meditation. Yeah, <laughs> Something very simple. That is the ideal. And... Uh, uh, because that will take you deeper in these things. And here in the suttas, uh, instead of calling that the samadhi nimitta, it is called obasa. Obasa means light. And rupa, rupa is the form, right? Uh, you see a light and you see a form. So um, here we have Anuruddha and these two other monks. They are practicing to achieve uh, these lights in the mind. Yeah, Like all of you have heard of, if you have been... Practicing with Ajahn Brahm for a while, you know he talks about these lights all the time, yeah, as a kind of gateway and entry into the jhanas and then going beyond that. So these are really, they are also found in the sutta. Sometimes they are said not to be in the sutta, but actually they are there. And specifically in this sutta here, they, they are. 
And the reason they're called light and form is because they are a light, and that light has a particular form usually. That's why they're called that. Light and forms can also be a seeing of devatas. If you see a devas in a meditation, they can also appear in a similar kind of way, like a form and light. Yeah, devas are light beings. The word deva, these gods, is derived from the word diva. Diva means day because it's bright. It's a bright, a bright being. Yeah. But then they also have a form, and then this is how they can be perceived in a similar kind of way. Uh, but it's diff- slightly different, so you can distinguish the two in your meditation once you get used to these things. Uh, and uh, so we perceive the thing, but then they disappear, right? This is what everyone talks about. Oh, I saw a light. It is gone. What should I do? Yeah, and probably some of you have had that experience as well. And this is kind of encouraging. Here are some of the greatest Arahants, not Arahants yet, but soon to be Arahants in the world, history. Yeah, Anuruddha was one of the great disciples of the Buddha, Kimblanandia, not so sure. They also became Arahants later on. They are struggling with exactly the same problems we are struggling with. Isn't that encouraging? And now we're going to find the solution to why they are struggling and how what we also need to do to stabilize some of these meditation objects. This is kind of nice again because it um, it makes our path yeah similar to the path of some of the greatest beings in Buddhist history here, and that's very, I think, I find it very encouraging and nice. Uh, and uh, the solutions are then given to us. Uh, so let's see what the solutions are here. The Buddha replies, well, you should work out the reason for that, right? Again, looking into causality, understanding how things work, how one thing gives rise to another thing. And now comes the same sentence that I have kind of is my critical sentence for inclusion into this collection of suttas. Before my awakening, when I was still unawakened but intent on awakening, I too, says the Buddha, perceived both light and visions of forms. But before long, my light and vision of forms vanished. It occurred to me, what is the cause, what is the reason why my light and vision of forms vanish? It occurred to me, doubt arose in me. And because of that, my immersion, my samadhi fell away. When samadhi falls away, my light and vision of forms the light and vision of forms vanish. I'll make sure that doubt will not arise in me again. So doubt, of course, being one of the five hindrances, right, arises. Why does doubt arise in this particular case? Yeah, you are happy. Meditation is going really well. Well, doubt can arise because you, uh, you, you, you know, why, <laughs> doubt can arise because... Um, uh, first of all, you're not sure maybe what to do next, Yeah, how to move on from there. This is a very common kind of problem and this kind of thing. Uh, that doubt may arise because sometimes, uh, and this is true of the Buddha as well, that he was afraid of happiness at a certain point. Yeah? And that's why we see in the, uh, the Mahasatchaka Sutta where he says just before his awakening, why am I afraid of that happiness that has to do with jhanas? Uh, when I shouldn't really be afraid of these things. Uh, so he has doubt as to whether he's on the right track. Am I doing the right thing? Uh, he has doubt about what he should do next to develop it further. Uh, yeah? And these are the kind of doubts that arise at this particular point. Uh, 
So the trick then is to have the confidence that people have done this before us, uh, that these things are heading in the right way. If, when you have these things, this is part of the path into deep samadhi. Uh, and then as you do that, then you go further, uh, and then eventually you go beyond that light into the jhana states themselves. Uh. So you overcome doubt, and then you ensure that that doubt does not arise again in the future uh, because you know that uh, uh, you're on the right track. Uh. And again, remember what doubt means on the Buddhist path. It means not being sure of what is wholesome and unwholesome. Uh. So you may doubt, you know, again, this idea, what, well, what can possibly be left to be, uh, what possibly can be, should I leave behind at this particular point? Uh, I don't seem to have any defilements of the mind anymore. My mind seems entirely pure. It's just bliss. Uh, and then doubt arises. You start worrying about what you should do next or whatever. Uh, and so that then becomes part of the problem. Uh. Well, meditating heedful, uh, keen, uh, and diligent, uh, I perceived both a light and a vision of forms. Uh, but before long, my light and vision of forms vanished. It occurred to me, what is the reason, what is the cause why my light and vision of form vanish? It occurred to me, loss of focus and arose in me. And because of that, my samadhi fell away. When samadhi falls away, the light and vision of forms vanishes. I'll make sure that neither doubt nor loss of focus will arise in me here. So um, here, well, maybe what the first thing to notice here is that this is called a kind of samadhi, right? Uh, usually samadhi in the suttas refers to the four jhana, that's samma samadhi, but occasionally it refers to lesser kinds of samadhi. And this is one of those instances where it refers to a lesser kind of samadhi. That is an important point, first of all, to keep in mind. Uh, secondly, loss of focus. Uh, uh, I think it's Ammanasikara, is that right? Do you have it? You don't have a tablet with you by any chance? No, I, I haven't got anything either. Yeah. No, no tablet? Okay, anyways, I think it's Ammanasikara, loss of focus. Uh, I think. Um, so you are not really attending properly on this to this object yeah maybe what happens is that you there is some distraction uh, maybe there's a sound the sound is one of the biggest distractions in meditation uh, uh, anyone who has meditated a lot will know that as the senses disappear the last sense to go is usually sound uh, so sound can penetrate into that meditation and bring you out leads to a lack of focus uh, or maybe the body is still experienceable in the early stages of this, maybe uh, so. Maybe something there is distracting. Uh, it's usually the five sense world that is distracting. Uh, but distraction also happens because you don't know how to focus uh, on this object. How do you focus on a light and form? Uh, and the idea here is to focus in such a way that you stay with the most beautiful and the central part of that uh, object. Uh, the idea is to allow that object to be as simple as possible. You don't look to the edges, you don't look at what is going on. You just stay with the simplicity and the beauty of that particular image. And as you stay with that, it develops by itself. This is beautifully explained in the Anapanasati Sutta. Someone asked the other day about looking at the Anapanasati Sutta, the Sutta on Mindfulness of Breathing. And uh, this here is what I consider equivalent to citta nupassana in the Satipatthana Sutta, contemplation of the mind. Uh, and that is explained in the 
Anapanasati-sutta, it is explained that first of all that you experience the mind. Chittang, chitta, patisang vedi means you experience the mind. Then you have abhipamojayang uh, chittang, gladdening the mind. Then you have samadayang chittang, means concentrating or stilling the mind. And then you have vimochayang chittang, is the fourth one, liberating the mind. So you can see what you're doing here. First of all, experiencing the mind. Okay, the light and the form is there. Then pamodayang chittang, gladdening the mind. You're staying with that light. You're allowing that light to become more beautiful, focusing on the center, allowing the brightness to increase. How do you do that? Well, you do it simply by doing nothing, just by staying with it, by enjoying the experience. And then it grows on you, quite literally. Then you have samadayang chittang, stilling this object. There may still be a little bit of movement there. Still you are looking, you are not actually staying with the center, you are allowing the mind to move a little bit. This is how, you know, there's a little bit of restlessness. You would never think of this as restlessness in an ordinary sense, but any kind of movement of the mind is a kind of restlessness of the mind. So you stay with the center, you allow the brightness to increase. You don't move around, you don't look at the edges, but you allow the thing to focus in more and more and more. Yeah, this is focusing on this thing. And it's expressed beautifully in the Anapanasati Sutta. And then the last step is Vimochayang Chittang, liberating the mind. This happens automatically through this process. Suddenly you fall into a jhana state. The nimitta disappears and you fall into something deeper. And that is when you are liberated, liberated from the body and the senses, liberated from the five hindrances, liberated from the will, the ability to do anything and all of that. This is how it comes about. So, um, amanasikara arose, so you don't allow that lack of focus to arise. Yeah, because then your immersion, your samadhi falls away. You stay with the object. And uh, then we have more yeah, of these things, uh, more of these now we are into the upakilesas, remember. These are called the upakilesas, the refined hindrances of the mind, the things that stop you at the very end of the path uh, into jhana. While meditating, dullness and drowsiness arouse in me. Yeah? And uh, then he asks himself again, what is the cause and what is the reason why these things uh, arise? Um, and then he ensures that dullness and drowsiness does not arise in the future, no, nor does doubt and loss of focus. So what does dullness and drowsiness mean in this context? And it often just means that the mind loses its energy. Energy and dullness and drowsiness are almost like opposites here. So your energy goes down. And this can be, again, due to not really appreciating what you're having here. It can maybe be... It can be um, maybe you have been going for too long. Maybe the, maybe there comes a point where maybe the mind doesn't want to do it anymore. Maybe not, maybe not making enough progress. And then because you're not making progress, the mind starts to withdraw or something. Yeah. This can be uh, causes for that dullness and drowsiness. But it's not dullness and drowsiness in the ordinary sense of the word. Uh, it's more like a lack of energy in the mind. You don't sustain that energy here. Uh. And so you want to ensure that this doesn't arise. And you do that again by focusing on the beautiful aspect of that object that will energize the meditation because it is so attractive and it draws you in and dullness and drowsiness as a consequence are banished.
Um, it is one minute to three, so I think maybe that's a good place to stop. Uh, there is a large number of more of these upakalesas to come, but it's worthwhile going through them slowly because they are actually quite uh, interesting. Uh, and so I think I better stop there. So that is uh, all for now. Please, as always, keep on enjoying yourself. And uh, there will be some more interviews at four. And then at uh, six o'clock, we will be back with doing some meditation together and followed by the Q&A later on. Okay. <laughs>